This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Welcome to Primal Screen, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. I am your host, Paul Anthony Nelson, and as we're still in the grip of Melbourne Lockdown Part 4, The Return of Michael Myers, I am delighted to be joined once again through the magic of Zoom for the fifth in our ongoing retro spotlights on films celebrating significant anniversaries. But firstly, by film critic, film historian, and co-curator uh, of Melbourne's long-running film society, the Melbourne Cinematheque, Eloise Ross. Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me. Lovely to have you with us. And film critic, film historian, author of at least six books on film and television, and director of the um, the other Melbourne long-running film society, <laughs> Cinemaniacs, it's Lee Gambon. Hello. I miss you two so much. I've got my pack back with me, Eloise and Paul. Good. <laughs> I love that you mentioned Michael Myers there because there's a nice connection between Michael Myers and Fred Astaire who we're going to be discussing, which we'll bring up, I'll bring up. Oh, wow. Uh, exciting. Choice. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so we will be going back a lot further than usual, spotlighting a trio of films turning 80 this year, three great films from 1941 that you can rent or stream from home. First, we'll overplay our hand with con artist Barbara Stanwyck as she tries to snag Yale Ale Air Henry Fonda in Preston Sturges' screwball comedy, The Lady Eve. Then we'll grow hair in uncomfortable places and howl at the moon with Lon Chaney Jr. and George Wagner's horror classic, The Wolfman. And finally, we'll dance all the way to the army with Fred Astaire and Rita Hayworth in Sidney Landfield's musical comedy, You'll Never Get Rich. Also, as you listen to us chatting about these films, please feel free to hit us up on our social media channels and leave a comment. Just search for Primal Screen on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, before we hop into our reviews of our trio of films turning 80 this year, we felt it might be worth just giving a quick snapshot of what cinema in 1941 looked like. With World War II raging throughout Europe and Asia, the United States sat divided on whether to enter the conflict which had an impact on Hollywood's output as films touched on acts of war heroism like the year's biggest box office hit, Howard Hawks' Sergeant York, or The uh, the Yank in the RAF, or even comedies normalising the act of joining the army such as Abbott and Costello's In the Navy, Bob Hope and Dorothy L'Amour in Caught in the Draft, to the point where a group of isolationist American senators who argued against the US joining the war launched a Senate investigation into motion picture war propaganda charging that Hollywood films were pushing the agenda to get America fighting alongside the Allied forces. Of course, this would all become a moot point on the 7th of December when the Japanese forces bombed the U.S. Air Force Base in Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. 
Obviously, due to most of the globe being caught up at war, Hollywood product dominated the landscape probably more than usual, but there was still an innocence to American cinema, partly due to its pre-war footing, partly due to the industry being seven years deep into the motion picture production code, otherwise known as the Hayes Code, due to its author, chief of what would later become known as the MPAA, Will Hayes, which restricted overtly or even slightly overtly sexual or so-called subversive content from appearing on American screens. The top box office star of the year was Mickey Rooney, despite the number four ranked star Bob Hope starring in four of the year's 12 biggest box office hits. I don't know how that doesn't make you number one. Um, The number one film of the year was the aforementioned Sergeant York, which also won the Oscar for its star Gary Cooper. And the best picture Oscar was won by John Ford's How Green Was My Valley, which has soon since proven controversial for decades since because of the film it beat for the Oscar that year. Yes, we can't talk about cinema in 1941 without mentioning Citizen Kane, the supernova debut film from actor, writer, producer, director, and owner of one of the century's greatest voices, Orson Welles. Orson Welles. I don't know if that sounded better on radio than it did in my ears. Uh, (laughs) uh, This... um, Everything about this German expressionist influence, deeply political, almost experimental debut from its 25-year-old Wunderkind auteur from a script mostly written by his much older and more experienced co-writer, Hermann J. Mankiewicz, its very thinly veiled critique of ultra-powerful media magnate William Randolph Hearst, how the film was sabotaged by Hearst's press empire, assuring its box office failure while receiving nine Oscar nominations, including four for Wells, the only one he and it won was best for best screenplay, which he shared with Mankiewicz. Everything around this film has become legend. But it wasn't the only capital G great film released that year. Preston Sturges, a gun Hollywood screenwriter of the 1930s who did the previously unthinkable by parlaying his success into the director's chair in 19, with 1940s The Great Maginti, had perhaps his two finest films released in 1941. The Hollywood satire, at least it starts out as one, Sullivan's Travels, and one of the films we'll be discussing tonight, the screwball comedy The Lady Eve. Another screenwriter, John Huston, followed Sturgis's lead into the director's chair with my own personal favourite film of 1941, the third and very best adaptation of Dashiell Hammett's detective novel, The Maltese Falcon. Maltese. <laughs> Disney. <laughs> Disney outdid themselves and no doubt inspired Pixar's entire existence with one of the saddest animated films ever made, Dumbo. Also doing double duty that year was Alfred Hitchcock, who was already working out cheeky ways to be loaned out to other studios while under under contract to super producer David O. Selznick. This year, making Suspicion with RKO, starring Joan Fontaine, who won an Oscar for that role, and a rare, somewhat villainous role for Cary Grant, as well as Mr. and Mrs. Smith at Warner Brothers, which was an even rarer screwball comedy from Hitchcock, starring Carol Lombard and Robert Montgomery. (coughs) There was also the idiosyncratic pairing of Warner Brothers' biggest male and female stars, James Cagney and Betty Davis, in William Keeley's The Bride Came C.O.D., as well as Michael Curtiz's grim action-adventure The Sea Wolf, George Stevens' romantic comedy Penny Serenade, Alexander Corder's That Hamilton Woman, Frank Capra's Meet John Doe, while the Marx Brothers wreaked havoc in the big store. And horror started to make a comeback. With uh, come back to A pictures at least with Victor Fleming, fresh, uh, not far from the twin blockbusters of Gone with the Wind and uh, The Wizard of Oz, helming Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde with Spencer Tracy, Ingrid Bergman, and Lana Turner, and Universal, the home of horror, which had fallen into decline over the last decade, got a momentary shot in the arm with one of the films we'll be discussing tonight George Wagner's The Wolfman. 
Internationally, things were a little slower, but that didn't stop Japanese master Ken, Kenji Mizuguchi from making his mid-career samurai masterpiece, The 47 Ronin, or across the pond from the US in the UK, director Michael Powell and screenwriter Emmerich Pressburger, soon to be collectively known as The Archers, would kick their famed partnership into high gear with 49th Parallel, or in China, who would give us what is considered the first Asian animated feature film with Princess Iron Fan from directors Wan Guchan and Wan Laming. There are far, far, far many more films I can mention, but frankly, we need to start the show. Eloise and Lee, do either of you have any thoughts about the films of 1941 before we leap in? Well, I just wanted to say that you reeling off that list of films from 1941 made me absolutely certain about why I'm here tonight, Paul, (laughs) why you asked me on the show, because I love every single one of them. Um, And this is certainly my, um, you know, one of the kind of best periods of American film history, I think. And now I'm just waiting for you to have a 100-year film history history. primal screen show so that I can come back for that. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, um, and I, I'm all for what Alois just said. Let's do more oldest content because, you know, the 40s is a perfect period for film and earlier than that. But also just the, the reeling off that list, it's like, oh, my God, I need to revisit all these things because I love them so much. You mentioned The Bride Came COD and I love the powerhouse crazy performances from <laughs> Betty Davis and James Cagney. They match each other so beautifully. Um, but, yeah, just in, interesting takes on how different um, – like Harry Grant doing something different that he was used to and all that sort of, you know, Carol Lombard, you know, coming out of like screwball comedy and into something more dramatic. It's all that kind of really interesting turning shift of people who were associated with one thing and doing something else, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. There's there's so many, yeah, kind of talents emerging this year, you know, like, again, we've got the birth of the writer director in the last couple of years, like, because before the 40s, as you both know, I mean, the the idea of a multi-hyphenate, a writer-director, and it was pretty much a, a class of one being Charlie Chaplin. Um, and then uh, with Sturge's kind of, uh, like, you know, some producers would moonlight, occasionally work on a script, or some directors might produce, but being a writer-director was super rare. And then Sturge's essentially, the legend goes that he made a deal uh, to... Um, to sell his uh, script for the great Jitty uh, for a dollar in order to get the uh, rights to direct. And then of course that, that sort of ushered in the era of John Houston of Wilson Wells and, and suddenly studios started to kind of throw the keys to writer directors a little bit more, um, which is of course now, you know, I feel like predominantly we have writer directors these days. Mm. Um, so yeah, a lot of dawning of new things. So shall we uh, rush to the couch for our first film? Every Jane in the room was giving him the thermometer and he feels they're just a waste of time. He's returning to his book. He's deeply immersed in it. He sees no one except... Watch his head turn when that kid goes by. Won't do you any good, dear. He's a bookworm, but swing him anyway. Oh, now how about this one? How would you like that hanging on your Christmas tree? Oh, you wouldn't? Well, what is your weakness, brother? The Lady Eve was the third feature film written and directed by Preston Sturgis. It's no accident when wealthy Charles, Henry Fonda, falls for Jean, Barbara Stanwyck, because Jean is a con artist with her sights set on Charles's fortune. Matters complicate when Jean starts falling for her, Mark, but when Jean uh, suspects Jean, uh, Charles suspects Jean is a gold digger, he dumps her, but Jean, fixated on revenge and still pining a little bit for the millionaire, devises a plan to get back into his life. 
With love and payback on her mind, she reintroduces herself to Charles, this time as an aristocrat named Lady Eve Sidwich. Eloise, while this was officially my pick for the evening, you're the biggest Barbara Stanwyck fan I know, so I'll give you the floor here. What about the Lady Eve has you tumbling head over heels? Goodness. Well, I love this, and I do have to say I was a bit jealous when you'd already picked this film because it is, well, one of the two best um, Barbara Stanwyck films of 1941, if not three best, which have that title. But anyway, I I mean, one of the things I noticed about this film re-watching it this time around was that because I had just re-watched You'll Never Get Rich, which is a war movie quite um, quite obviously, and I was like, The Lady Eve is not a war movie, but there are actually a couple of references to wartime and wartime living and even one of the characters, I feel like it's William Demarest, um, imitates Hitler <laughs> at one point <laughs> in the film. So it is actually this really interesting representation of 1941 in America. Um, and like how Hollywood was kind of engaging with it. But that's, I guess that's an aside. That's not really why I love it. I love it for Barbara Stanwyck and Henry Fonda and all of the jokes and Eric Bloor, which I know is going to excite Lee over here. <laughs> um, and just how, I don't know, the gowns, kind of how perfect it is. Um, I know a lot of screwballs were doing this at the time, but that first scene where Barbara Stanwyck, you know, quote unquote, seduces Henry Fonda, or at least like targets him in the boat, in the ship's lounge, is like this deconstruction of the romantic comedy meet cute before films were even, before that was even really a genre. Do you know what I mean? So Mm. it's this really like it's a, a clever film beyond, I think, what we can or what we deserve to grapple with even. Um, and that's basically what you want from a movie, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and also things like side side conversations that like characters we never see again in the film are having, like it's just this sort of passage of life around what is happening between the two leads. That was surely something new as well. I don't remember that happening too often in films before this time like the depth of scenes and the depth of background characters mm. and everything like this. Like, you know, like like we, we go past the boat, like when, when Charles yeah. gets off the boat, when it arrives, we, there's this there's this shot where we basically pan past all of these people and they're all having their own conversations and often they're people we don't see again. I mean, it's true. We have talked about, I know I've talked about with you, Paul, at least, like planes of action in movies of this time. And it's something that doesn't really, you know, it's not very common. And so when it does happen, it really stands out where you can see things happening, not even in the background, but in the, you know, the third kind of plane behind mm. behind the main action. It's, it's, is, it's really exciting. You get a lot of it in, say, backstage musicals, however. So, for instance, if there's if it's an ensemble piece and there's a lot of people working um, and they occupy this scene or this, this space, you'll have side conversations and they just generally propel the narrative or a mood rather than actually serve the purpose of these characters having anything more to do but, you know, <laughs> comment on what the situation's <laughs> happening. But this film, you're right, it's totally... Yeah, it's got these sidebar sort of um, sequences that go nowhere. <laughs> or the yes. characters move on nowhere. But what I want to bring up, um, and Aloise, you bring up that sort of establishing moment where she's, um, you know, cruising him, um, <laughs> is that really elongated sequence where they're sitting together and she's, you know, 
um, seducing him. Oh, my God. Just beautiful. And that writing's terrific and he's terrific, you know, (laughs) bumbling snake specialist, uh, which is great. I love that he's a snake specialist. But just this whole thing, which takes its time. And it's really cool. This just two-hander with both of them facing the camera and it's got this elongated, really beautiful sense of, um, of, um, you know, seduction. But also way to get around the Hayes Code because mm. that is one of the sexiest scenes going. Like yeah. just her kind of cradling his head and whispering to him and seducing him and, you know, the stuff, all the business with trying on the shoes and everything else before that. And, and it's like it, it gets you quite hot under the collar and it's like this is, <laughs> this is remarkably well done. And she looks so beautiful oh. in this film, Barbara Stanley. I just think, like, obviously Barbara Stanwyck is incredible and she should have been probably nominated for an Oscar this year, but she got nominated for Ball of Fire, which came out, I think, in December 1941, so it was closer to Oscar voting period than The Lady Eve. Fresher in um, their minds. Yeah. Um, I mean, Henry Fonda is so fantastic, just kind of playing it as though he I don't know. What is it even like? Like he can't access his sexuality, but he's still <laughs> turned on and he doesn't quite understand it. And because he's just, he's, you know, as you said, been up the Amazon for a year and then Barbara Stanwyck says, a good thing you weren't up there two years. I mean, that's <laughs> the way you get around the Hayes Code. Yeah. <laughs> um, but just his performance is so good. And maybe also off screen he was a little bit in love with Barbara Stanwyck. You know, they'd co-starred before and that's certainly in some of the writing around their um, their films together. But I think, you know, he's just fantastic. Yeah. He'd only done a handful of comedies to that point, hadn't he? He's like, this was still, and throughout his career, I mean, it's kind of reasonably rare for him, particularly at this point in his career. Yeah, I, he, I don't think he'd done all that many. I mean, he did one kind of soft comedy that was a romance film with Barbara Stanwyck and then one that was a screwball, The Mad Miss Mountain, but that's really her vehicle. Mm. Um, he's just kind of the passive guy, which he is very much in this film too. <laughs> I, I, I had like I kept wondering what his relationship to kind of the reality around him was in this film because he often seems like he's on another planet. He's like, like a man child and, and you know yeah. bumbling, bumbling through. And I just love the endless moments of him getting stuff spilt all over him. <laughs> but, um, Alois, I'd like to ask you about um Stanwick as a comedic actress. What are your thoughts on her as a comedic actress in you know, in comparison to her dramatic works? I mean, she's so She's, she know I mean, she's got this quality that so many actors in 1941 and surrounding years had, which is that she knows how to control her voice. Like her voice, her voice is a comedic instrument as well as her body. She's also quite physical in her comedy um, as well as verbal. I think, I don't know. I mean, she's so good at everything, essentially. She can be so, and she does have those moments of dramatic or emotional kind of, realness in this film that sell it I mean that's what lifts this film above maybe something like I don't know it's different but my man Godfrey you know with a Carol Lombard type who is just completely madcap the whole way through like (laughs) you know in this film she can access several registers I think I mean I think she's so yeah really good to watch very funny she's quite grounded 
at certain moments yeah. in this film. She really knows when, you know, when to ground it and when to, you know, explode. Because this film for me picks up when the, um, the Eric Law character comes in and the film becomes a farce. So she gets to play up, the, you know, the aristocrat, the English woman. Mm. So she gets to play this sort of really broad very vocal comedy, whereas opposed to something like Christmas in Connecticut or something where it's a comedy, mm. but she's, like Paul said, very grounded. Like she's like the straight woman in it, you know what I mean? Whereas mm. in this film, the last half an hour, she's just, you know, big, broad, um, classy woman. <laughs> it's it's interesting. And you mentioned Eric Bloor, but one of the one of the gifts with Sturges is his, his rogues gallery, shall we say, of um, character actors. You got William Demarest in there. You got Charles Coburn. You got all these, and it's all of these secret weapons that he deploys from film to film. And he was he was one of the earliest directors to become quite famous for that, for populating like to the point where he had fights with the studio over it, where they would they'd they'd say that people are going to get sick of seeing the same people in your films. He's like, no, no, if they were good enough to stick with me in my first couple of things, not knowing whether they'd be good or not they you know essentially he's indebted to them for the rest of his life which is really sweet but yeah they're so good um and 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 always have this facility with his dialogue which is and 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 he does in Sturges is well known for a particularly sophisticated kind of wordplay and um and reference yeah and uh, uh, there's a nice link to Sturges and our universal monster world which we're dealing with later because he was a contributing writer to the invisible man uh oh. which is really cool yeah so um also i just want to bring up um one thing that i really love from the lady eve is the opening cartoon title sequence which is from leon schlesinger who produced heaps of looney tunes cartoons and he was primarily known for the porky pig cartoons of the 30s and it's just beautiful cute little animation the little snake you know swiveling through the credits <laughs> so cool. another animation but actually on that uh 1941 was the first year that um the first credited screen appearance of bugs bunny there you go. Is that he, right? He first appeared the previous year in 1940, but uh, he was the first time he was credited on screen as starring Bugs Bunny, 1941. Oh. So if you would like to get the thermometer for uh, Barbara Stanwyck, uh, check out The Lady Eve, now available to rent or buy via YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, and the Microsoft Store. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. And you're back with Primal Screen on Triple R with Eloise Ross, Lee Gambon, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. You think I don't know the difference between a wolf and a man? Bela became a wolf, and you killed him. A werewolf can be killed only with a silver bullet or a silver knife or a stick with a silver handle. You're insane. I tell you, I killed a wolf, a plain, ordinary wolf. The Wolfman was the 16th feature film directed by George Wagner. After his brother's death, Larry Talbot, Lon Chaney Jr., returns home to his father, Claude Rains, and his ancestral family estate. Events soon take a turn for the worse when a visit to a travelling fortune teller, uh, played by Bella Lugosi, ends with Larry being bitten by a werewolf. Lee, you're on something of a lycanthropic note, uh, theme of late. Uh, you picked The Howling for your 40th anniversary film and now The Wolfman for your 80th anniversary pick. Uh, what is it about this film keeps you howling decades When you later? said 1941, my brain 
went straight to the Wolfman. It's a film I've grown up with, and it's obvious. And my dog's favorite movie, one of his favorites. <laughs> no, no, I love the Wolfman. Grew up with it. It's one of the sort of staple um, comfort movies of mine. There's so much that I love about it. One thing I really want to sort of tap into is the fact that um, Kurt Siedmark, the the writer of it, really sort of sets up the werewolf mythology outside of sort of folkloric um, legend. So he sets up the thing about you know the pentacle on the hand and mm. you know, the full moon and all that sort of stuff, and also how he builds this sort of fairy tale kind of world, which is kind of nondescript. You've got like English gentry, you've got real Americana, you've got, you know, Evelyn Anchors in like fashionable 1940s costuming. You've got the Romani people there combined, you know, with their carriages, you know, hanging out with people driving cars, you know. So maybe not hanging out, but (laughs) coexisting. (laughs) But this whole kind of really interesting um, fabricated world that's otherworldly and, um, you know, like a fairy tale. Also the musical score. So a friend of mine, Steve McCready, and I talk about the score a lot and it's all written in tritone. It's all the devil's music, the devil's interval, um, which is the forbidden interval. And there's this really beautiful sense of it sort of um, really kind of uh, emphasising the Greek tragedy of the piece and also bringing on a promise of something sinister. But it's really interesting, me and Steve talked about it recently, where you hear elements of it and you can hear Danny Alfman bring that up in his Batman score. There's moments oh, if you wow. read this yeah, re-listen to it. It's really interesting. Um, but, yeah, all the cast are amazing. I think Lon Chaney Jr.'s performance is just beautiful. He really sort of taps into that tragic sort of, you know, um, unfortunate figure, this guy that's, you know, cursed and perplexed by this curse. Um, Evelyn Ankers is wonderful as well. Um, she's a really good match to Lon Chaney in there. It's unfortunate reading up on it that they didn't really get along, which mm. sucks. Um, but also the incredible cast, you know, led by Claude Rains, Maria Ospenskaya, all these amazing performers in it, um, Ralph Bellamy. But also the makeup design, of course, you know, if you're going to talk movie monsters, you're going to talk movie monster makeups. And Jack Pierce's work on it is incredible. Um, originally, the original draft of the script was meant to be sort of more ambiguous with the werewolf transformation. Larry Talbot was meant to be sort of implied to turn into a wolf. But thank God for us movie monster fans, <laughs> and we're all that, Alois, you and I. Um, uh, Not me. Right, it's right. <laughs> yes, you are. Uh, we love to see the monster on screen, right? So it's cool that Jack Pierce came on board. And before Jack Pierce, the main sort of universal makeup guy was Lon Chaney Senior, um, mm. Junior's um, father, who did his own makeups. But Jack Pierce came on, and it was basically yak hair laid onto his face with spirit gum for Lon Chaney Junior. Um, the fur was singed. There was all these different appliances used, so like a snout, etc. But it was something that um, Lon Chaney did not find comfortable. I mean, I don't think anyone would. And there's that great photo of um, uh, Jack Pierce and Lon Chaney in the seat, and Lon Chaney's um, got a fist. <laughs> <laughs> he just sort of struck. But Bud Westermore actually stepped in after this and he sort of streamlined the uh, makeups for the Wolfman when we when he got to um Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, which is another favorite. But yeah, look, it's just a beautiful film. Um the score, the way it looks, the the design, um, just the 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 energy of the script. Uh, and it's tragic and, and a really moving piece as well. And I think it's kind of like the Universal Monster movie stepping into the 40s and evolving, I think. Um, mm. If you think about, you know, the masterworks of James Whale, like The Invisible Man, Bride and Frankenstein, they're ma- magnificent and Dracula. But if you look at Dracula compared to The Wolfman, there's such a big difference in, a, mm. in, in you know, um, uh, I don't know, the way the film's mounted and, and the way it flows and just the aesthetic and stuff. It's very, very dramatically different. But, yeah, I just think it's a 
remarkable film. And and night and day in terms of like things like performance and stuff as well. Oh yeah, yeah. Dracula yeah. very stagey. Mm. Um, Wolfman's you know, forties Hollywood cinema. You know, Eloise. I I mean one of the things that I love about this film it's I have to say I only watched it for the first time I'd seen quite a number of Universal horror films. Um, Werewolves are really cool, I'm discovering, but whenever really my, you know, my go-to in terms of what I love and the kind of the law that I wanted to chase down. But I really like this film and I have to say that, um, you know, it's beautiful. Like the cinematography and the, the fog and kind of, you know, the way that they make the forest and the graveyards at night into these, you know, kind of, spooky unwelcoming but also really enticing places filled with um you know with this with literal mist uh well literal cinematic mist and also a mysticism is really amazing and reminded me of another film that I think does kind of the best moody mistiness of that time the curse of the cat people Mm. not quite cat people which is also fantastic but the curse of the cat people just has these like incredible scenes um of this child being called into this um fog laden forest and so that was really you know really powerful and one and kind of the most memorable thing to me even more so than Lon Chaney's feet changing into wolf that's pretty great into his paws, <laughs> his big paws. It was shot by a guy named Joseph A. Valentine, who shot a trio of films for Hitchcock. Shot Saboteur, Shadow of a Doubt, and most impressively, Rope. Um, mm. Due to you know the moving set and the seven you know seven eleven minute takes. Uh, yeah, the atmosphere in this film is so beautifully created. It's one of the things that re- it really uh, sticks out about the way this film is crafted. And as you said, Lee. Um, I think the makeup in this film is terrific. Like it's it's such an and part of it's such an iconic look. Like it's very much seared on our on our brains these days, but it still yeah. looks mm. really effective just as you know, like whether whether you find it scary or whether you find it just sort of appealing, it's mm. just there's something about it that's just really cool. The snout and the, the it's very yeah. I mean, it's a wolf man, you know. A big difference from say Henry Hull <clears throat> um from the Werewolf of London, which has that kind of stripped back kind of werewolf mm. look, um, whereas this one's full-fledged, you know, furry, um, uh, full head of hair werewolf guy. But the thing is, interestingly enough as well, as werewolves evolve in cinema history, they eventually get the elongated snout. Yeah. Um, mm. Some werewolves will start to look more like your timber wolf and your sort of, you know, actual wolf, whereas this is the wolf man. And the Lon Chaney design influences a whole range of different werewolf designs. You know, up until you get to the point of maybe the the 70s and into the 80s. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's I love the design. It's iconic. It's gorgeous. Is one of you know the 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 king of the monsters. You know, <laughs> the, the, the the great Universal canon. But um, yeah, just a really kind of uh, also a really um beautiful film that sparked you know the whole monster mashup thing. So the sequel, the direct sequel to this movie would be Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, which is another brilliant film. Um, a really perfect and perfectly realised sequel and follow-up. And then also the House movies, the House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula, which is like, you know, great monster mashup movies, um, which I love.
love. I think House of Frankenstein is one of my favorites. It reads like two movies. You've got the the Dracula component, and then you've got the 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 Wolfman component. Like it's really cool. Um, and then of course the Frankenstein monster thrown in there for measure. But it's just really good fun. One of those movies that is a comfort film. Um, and yeah, a go-to for me and I think a lot of other monster and, fans. Absolutely. And it's 70 minutes long. That's what's crazy about these yeah. universal monster films. I love yeah. the abrupt endings to you. It's <laughs> <laughs> great. Also, I, I just wanted to touch on um, some of the um, actors. Like one, Ralph Bellamy playing like a no-nonsense, hard-nosed cop is weird to me because every time I see him in something, he's kind of a buffoon. Yeah, he's like a, he's a lanker, he's a bit of a buffoon or he's kind of lovable and in this he's kind of like yeah he's like the take no shit cop yeah i really like i really like ralph bellamy i'm just gonna put it in there he's Um, great he's always great but i just rarely see him play this guy who's just like (laughs) you know like he'll kick your ass if he needs to (laughs) um but i think there's a lot of actors you know doing interesting work in this film and and like claude rains is an actor who i always Mm. love to see but there's an actor in this film who is operating on another level as far as I'm concerned, and that's Maria Ushpinskaya. Oh, she's magnificent. Um, and she was a you know a drama teacher, a, a major acting coach. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. I Yeah, because I, I'd heard of her and I knew she did some films, but I, I, I hadn't looked into her background until this week. She was a colleague of Stanislavski, and she taught Stella Adler and Lee Strasberg. As well as John Garfield, so she is the teacher of the method above the teacher of the method. Without Maria Ushpinskaya, there is no actor's studio. Just there is no right. Marlon Brando. There is yeah. that, like it's ridiculous. And just her, the, the the performance in this film as well, this sort of compassion that she shows, you know, uh, Lon. It's just beautiful, and that's that's that re- that's replicated again in the next film in Frankenstein Miss Miss the Wolfman, even more so. Yeah, but yeah, I love her. I love her performance in this film. Another thing I want to sort of champion as well that people sort of overlook is Vera West, who's the costume designer who did all the Universal monster movies. She did a lot of work for Universal. But my friend um, Alyssa McKechnie is a Hollywood um, costume historian, and she actually owns a Vera West original address. Oh, wow. um, I'm not sure what film it's from, but yeah, so Vera West's work as well is something that kind of gets overlooked, I think. Um, but that's an, another interesting facet there. Um, but yeah, just the the idea of astrology being something of interest um, in this movie, and the the world of science, the film opening with you know the like the lycanthropy, you know <laughs> having that word displayed on a screen is really exciting to me as a werewolf fan. <laughs> I remember like She Wolf of London, which is a, a, a sort of Scooby Doo kind of werewolf movie where June Lockhart <laughs> is ghastly into thinking she's a werewolf. There's a great image of her reading a book with lycanthropy as the big title on the cover. But that kind of thing is really uh, exciting for me as someone who loves werewolves. But, yeah, no, I it's it's a masterpiece. And as you say, yeah, all the cast are incredible. Claude Rains as well, just like there's something kind of almost sinister about mm. him as well. There's something a bit cagey and, and, and shifty about him. And I think when they got to the remake years later um, with Anthony Hopkins, they really played up to that. Yes. <laughs> you know, so he was actually a werewolf in the end. Well, yeah. having, I wanted to bring up, Paul, am I allowed to bring up another film on another streaming service, which of is course. An American Werewolf in London, which after on the weekend when I watched The Wolfman, we actually just impromptu decided to follow it up with American Werewolf in London, which kind of, I mean, it talks about The Wolfman and it references it, but not in like a smarmy or cliched 
kind of way and not in a way to say, well, I'm a werewolf movie and I'm one-upping the Wolfman, but just really appreciating it and actually like references, you know, the main character David says, kind of pays homage to Claude Rains, the character, but also the actor, you know, in all of his emotion and his investment in his son um, Lon Chaney who becomes the werewolf, you know, which is a really beautiful connection and I thought it was kind of just a really perfect double if anyone, uh, you know, if you guys yeah, wanted to go and follow up. I love that you bring that up, Eloise, because Kurt Seardmack sets in stone a lot of werewolf mythology. Mm. Yeah, and they really follow it up, you know, in American Werewolf in London. Yeah. And saying that, you know, he can only be killed by someone who loves him, you know. like <laughs> well, I didn't want to uh, say that because I didn't know if we were going to spoil the it's, movie, Paul. It's, <laughs> it's an 80-year-old <laughs> film. Um, American Wolf in London is also like literally one of my top 10 all time favorite mm. movies. So I'm, yeah, I, I, and that's another tragic romance as well. You know? But also Lee, it's a Danny Elfman score. And I wonder whether Danny Elfman pay, you know, kind of references the Wolfman in that score. I don't know, but, but it kind in of. In his remake, in the remake. Oh, it, it, isn't he the, doesn't he write the score for an American Wolf in London? No, no. It's Elmer no. Bernstein. Yeah, oh, right. Bernstein and mostly songs. Polydor released that film, so they wanted a, you know, a rock and roll album. So they had like Credence Clearwater, etc. But yeah, Bernstein does the actual original score, which is right. seldom really used in throughout the film. It's all the Moon songs that exactly, uh, that, uh, yeah. which is which is fantastic. But Alfman does score the Wolfman remake, so right. Ah, they yes, mm-hmm. and that's the thing. It, it's funny because I. I haven't seen the remake, but I knew of that twist. And watching this, I kept watching Claude Rains and going, yeah, this is definitely where they've got the idea because he seems like he's going to pull that card out. He does a bit, doesn't he? Yeah, and never quite does. Um, But, yeah, this is is heaps of fun. I mean, God, you've got 70 minutes on a Saturday night just just – Bung it on. It's and just iconic imagery. The Wolfman's yeah. face is something that you know is iconic, as iconic as Margaret Hamilton, as the Witch in Wizard of Oz, mm. as Superman, as what you know what I mean. Carl Office really Frankenstein. Kind of, yeah. yeah, exactly. Brilliant stuff. So the Wolfman is now available to rent or buy via YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, and the Microsoft Store. Uh, you are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Lee Gambin, Eloise Ross, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. Just sounded a bit like you're listening to Primal Screen. I'm maybe getting into a bit of the 1941. Were you doing it? Doing what? That. Oh, you mean this? Say, you're not bad. You'll Never Get Rich was the 24th feature film directed by Sidney Lanfield. Theatre owner and womanizer Martin Cortland, played by Robert Benchley, enlists the aid of his choreographer Robert Curtis, Fred Astaire, to woo dancer Sheila Winthrop, Rita Hayworth, but is caught by his long-suffering wife Julia, played by Frida Innescourt, who hints that he's gone too far this time and his increasingly unbelievable excuses might soon be judged by 12 strange men. Robert and Sheila are attracted to one another, but Robert is is caught in Martin's continual attempts to deceive his wife and keep his marriage and thus his fortune intact, and Sheila doubts Robert's sincerity. This is complicated when Robert joins the army to get away from all this, but winds up at the same army base as Sheila's boyfriend, Captain Barton, played by John Hubbard. Between repeated uh, stints in the guardhouse, will Robert win over his true love? Eloise, 
as your pick for tonight, what about this film has you shooting the works for Uncle Sam? I don't know if that's what draws me to it, Paul, but, <laughs> um, you know, I feel like the world is increasingly, well, giving me a hard time recently and I just kind of need to go back to some of these nice musicals, the escapist um, the escapist musicals of the 30s and 40s that existed. And, I mean, what's kind of interesting about this is that it's not particularly escapist, um, but in many ways a lot of these musicals weren't. Um, but, you know, just kind of being able to revel in the wonderful dance scenes and big sets, beautiful singing, um, fabulous, glamorous gowns. Um, and everything like that. I mean, in many ways, I think that their second, so Rita Hayworth and Gene Kelly did two films together. The second was the following year, um, a film, a title that was slightly less strange, although not entirely less strange, You Were Never Lovelier, um, is actually a better film for this particular purpose because it is much more escapist. It's not set during war, like in an actual war location and doesn't continually refer to the war and all of these hardships, but it does, you know, do other things. Um, but this film, I just, you know, it's really, I love it. The scene, the songs are so fantastic um, and the way the camera kind of moves around the uh, Rita Hayworth and Fred Astaire when they're dancing is so wonderful. Just so nice. I don't know. Can I just love something because it's so nice? Yes. And, this, and the songs are by some hack named Cole Porter as well. <laughs> I mean, There's yes, that. it's a Cole Porter musical and so it is really wonderful and lovely. Um, it's a Columbia picture. You know, they made a lot of musicals so they were really, really good at it. Rita Hayworth, um, you know, has kind of talked quite a lot about um being put in all of these kind of movies and Columbia signing her on and not knowing what to do with her um, and she was kind of, you know, shafted and thrown about here and there. And she had been in a couple of musicals before this point, but this was her first kind of like big leading role. And I feel like I've read when she's talking about her early career, she's like, well, finally they decided to let me dance and and that was where I belonged so I could perform, I could do it. Um, and you can just see that kind of happiness in her. Um, she, oh, she and she was already like- knew how to be in in front of the camera. I mean, maybe someone similar, someone like Doris Day who is really, really talented, was really incredible, but you see in her first leading role she has almost no confidence at all performing in front of the camera. Um, I think, is, is it Romance on the High Seas, Lee, that that's yeah. her first role? That's the one. But but Rita Hayworth had already been in a couple of movies, so she already knew. So she just kind of like you know she carries it. I was just going to quickly say uh, she was she was apparently uh, later quoted as saying, "I guess the only jewels in my life are the pictures I made with Fred Astaire." Yeah, it's lovely. I um, just going nice. off what Eloise was saying, it's really amazing to read up on Fred Astaire's admiration of Rita Hayworth's Latin uh, Latin. Um, experience mm. in dancing like latin dancing she was excelled right as a latina woman and he incorporated uh, and latin moves into dancing yeah, in this film that, that whole number um so near and yet so far um really showcases that and then if you think about her iconic role in gilda she performs in that but mm-hmm. then also in the follow-up um noir that she did again with glenn ford was a fear affair in trinidad <laughs> where she does a number which is all latin influenced as well a caribbean sort of style so then you get to see her with fred astaire it's a different animal when she's like 
teamed up with Twitter Stare and just watching them together. It's just beautiful. And just how freaking cool Predestare is. Like just his effortless, you know, <laughs> sort of movement. It's just incredible. And like performing with um the four tones, who was which was an amazing musical act led by Lucius um Brooks, who was in a few race films. He did a lot of um uh, black centric westerns, and one of them was um Harlem on the on the Prairie, which was uh said to be the first all black musical westerns. And that was directed by Sam Newfield, who actually did a werewolf movie called um, The Mad Monster. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, I love You'll Never Get Rich. I think what you were saying, Alois, about escapist genre, it's really important. So things like musicals and horror films, these are films that built studios. Mm. You know, MGM was built by musicals. Universal was built by horror films. And these are escapist things that we need. We need to sort of, you know, throw ourselves into that kind of comfort zone of musicals or westerns or horror films. Yeah, or even like perfect screwballs. I've been watching a lot of screwballs the last couple of weeks. I mean, the one, obviously, The Lady Eve we talked about. I watched Easy Living recently, you know, a whole range of these things. And this is an example of that perfect kind of cross-section of musical and screwball that was kind of like from around the mid-30s to the early 40s, I think, and maybe a little bit later, but there were quite a, like, you know, a lot of movies that really excelled in both of these ways. I mean, this film is really funny. It's very silly, which is probably where a lot of its comedy comes from, but it's also a farce, but it doesn't overdo it. Um, It's really delightful. Um, You know, there's a lot of if you think about it in terms of this like early 1940s kind of uh, late 30s, early 40s, Hollywood screwball set in New York State, it has jokes about Connecticut, which is really hilarious, especially when you think about all of the films that did like um, Bringing Up Baby and, of course, the, um, the Lady Eve. These were linked because of their jokes about um, Connecticut. Connecticut. I keep thinking about that that line from what's the film called? Um, Small Time Crooks, where Woody Allen said, you know, someone asked Woody Allen, "What do you what do you most want in life?" And he said, "Well, I'd really love to know how to spell Connecticut," <laughs> which is funny because it's making fun of and kind of drawing on all of these screwball comedy references to this <laughs> weird, strange other world. You know, you didn't really understand what Connecticut was, but these movies kind of used it um, and enriched it for its um, class, I guess class and also geographical kind of status. Yeah. And also, Louise, just going off um, the notion of musicals and wartime films um, as a combo, as a mm. combo effort. I, I actually gravitate to them. I love that amazing sequence, that really grim sequence in Gold Diggers of 33 um, where they're marching, uh, the beautiful Busby Berkeley work. Yeah. But, and also White Christmas deals with it. There's a whole lot of them. There's a whole range of these musicals that are kind of the whistling in the dark thing where you make something um, bearable through a horrible, oppressive situation. And the musical does that with um, in, in, in collaboration with the wartime pictures. And this film's a perfect example, except it sets up war as a bit of a playground in a <laughs> sense because the guys are having fun with each other. They're playing tricks with each other. There's the fake pigeon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and like it's, it's not really wartime. Because because at this point, like we established earlier, like the US hadn't entered the war yet. So for Americans, it was still peacetime. So they could still, you know, join the army and and be goofy. And like the whole film is, you know, although there's, you know, shooting the works for Uncle Sam and a few other pro-American kind of things here. 
most of the film is about how just Fred Astaire is completely, un- and most of his platoon are completely unsuited to being in the army. <laughs> like he spends half his time in the guardhouse. It becomes his second home. I mean, in a sense, I guess Hollywood could do this because they didn't need to prove yet in a propagandistic way yes. that Americans could fight war because they weren't in the war. So they could, yeah. you know, use it for this um, kind of exploration of the American yeah. jokey archetype. It's simply a place for him to get away because he's like sick of having to deal with all the women and with all the Martin and all the other things. I and was delighted. The magic of climaxing on top of a wedding cake that's in the shape of a tank. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's real movies, okay? I just love like there's the USO show at one point and there's a bunch of like, you know, women dressed as brides. It's like, is this what soldiers are really looking for in the USO show in 1940? Just go with it. I was delighted by this film. I I didn't know what I was going to think of it going in. Um, and I just, I mean, it's it's a dance musical rather than a, there's not a lot of singing in the film. There's mm. there's mainly dance. A stare is like he's made of mercury. Like he's so, is there, has there ever been a more fluid mover on screen? Like it's ridiculous. Um, and also a master of percussion. Like if, if yeah. you watch him, like. Yeah. It's just incredible. But when he's marching, you know, he's marching along at the at the um, army base, and he kind of, you know, embeds this tap dance um, rhythm into it, which is what you're saying, Paul. Yeah, he's so and he's so charismatic. Rita Hayworth is so um, so beautiful, and again, charismatic. I also really appreciated Robert Benchley, who is who is a humorist at the time and uh, a very famous one um, and comic actor and one of the Algonquin the famous Algonquin round table. Um, he's hilarious in this film. There's a, you know, there's the, the men in this film are mostly scoundrels, um, <laughs> but in a fun, pretty, you know, silly type way, it's 88 minutes. It's, you can't really go wrong. Lee, before we lead off, you had a, you had a surprising connection yes. to bring us full yes. circle. So I just want to say, um, I love that we're spending time championing the works of people like Lon Chaney and Evelyn Ankers and Maria Ospitskaya and Claude Rains and Fred Astaire and Rita Hayworth and Barbara Stanwyck, etc. <laughs> because these people are legends. And, and I just want to sort of say that everything cool is connected. So you opened um, the radio show today, Paul, with, um, <laughs> subtitling at the return of Michael Myers. And interestingly enough, Fred Astaire's, uh, one of his best friends, collaborators and choreographers um, was Nick Castle, who oh, wow. is the father of Nick Castle Jr., who played the shape in Halloween. So he was Michael Myers um, and returned to play Michael Myers, I believe, in the recent one from He did ago. too, yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> and if you actually look at, you know, the way Michael Myers moves in the first film, how he sort of looks like a marionette and tilts his head and does, it's dance, you know, <laughs> it's beautiful. Anyway, that's all I'm saying. People need to stop championing the works of people now. Let's look back <laughs> and look at brilliant people like Rita and Fred <laughs> and Lon, etc. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you both. Um, so you have been listening to Primal Screen <laughs> on Triple R with Eloise Ross, Lee Gambin, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. We reviewed The Lady Eve, The Wolfman, and You'll Never Get Rich, all now available to rent or buy via YouTube, iTunes, and Google Play. And the first and last are also available at the Microsoft Store. Join us next week for a Spotlight episode we in Melbourne can all relate to more than a little bit. We're spotlighting three films all about someone locked in a box, inspired by French horror director Alexandra Arge's new Netflix film, Oxygen. 
To find out what films we're pairing with it, keep an eye out on our social media channels this coming weekend. A huge thank you to Morty Osborne for editing the Primal Screen podcast, Carl Chapman for paneling and providing producing assistance for our show, Lee and Eloise, thank you so much for joining in. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 